Welcome to the Truth Lover. I'm Will Pye. This is presented by Love and Truth Party. Love and Truth Party is a self-organizing, self-replicating community and movement of love and awakening, a wisdom school facilitating and celebrating the true nature of the human being. We exist to empower the deep realization and integration of unitive consciousness of one human being and to inspire action in the world from this place as new earth ninjas. We do so in the spirit of play, holding the paradox that all is well, even and including all collective crises, while simultaneously being moved to act, to lessen suffering and serve the creation of conscious culture and society. Our projects include distributing a million love letters from the universe, inviting people to receive love and care, in these and within the happiness hacks and other resources found on loveandtruthparty.org and to then pay it forward in a social experiment exploring what it is to be the change and today i'm really thrilled to be joined by linda graham linda graham is an experienced psychotherapist in the san francisco bay area she is the author of the resilience toolkit powerful practices for bouncing back from disappointment difficulty and even disaster that was released recently in 2000 or is upcoming for release in 2018 and that built on much of the work um, explained and explored in bouncing back rewiring your brain for maximum resilience and well-being which was winner of the 2013 books for a better life award and the 2014 better books for a better world award mm. she integrates modern neuroscience mindfulness practices and relational psychology in her international trainings on resilience and well-being and publishes a monthly e-newsletter and weekly resource for recovering resilience. These are archived and you can find more information about Linda at www.lindagram-mft.net. Linda, wonderful to have you here today. Thanks for joining the Truth Lover podcast. Oh, and good to be with you, Will. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. And resilience seems to be a, an essential capacity to be developing in perhaps 2018 as much as any time in human history. But it's perhaps a word that's not as well understood as uh, well-being or, or, or mindfulness. So what are we talking about when you say resilience? What, what does this mean? I start with saying that it's coping with adversity. It's bouncing back from life's challenges and catastrophes and crises. When I told my brother I was writing a book on resilience, he said, resilience, what's that? Oh, I know. It's bouncing back from the truly terrible. And I, and I think that's what it is for most people. Um, as human beings, we face disappointment and difficulty a lot in our lives. It's somewhat inevitable. Even having to go through disasters and coming out the other side of them into what's now being called post-traumatic growth is also somewhat inevitable in the human condition. So the more we can understand and embrace that resilience is a capacity innate in our being because it's innate in our brain, and we learn the tools to cultivate it and strengthen it and practice it, and then come to claim that we can learn to be resilient, that we can learn these tools. That becomes part of our resilience, seeing ourselves as skillful and competent and capable and courageous. And that feels to be a really important distinction that the skill that we're talking about here is something that can be cultivated, trained, 
practice. So we might think there are some people who just do well with life's difficulties and others who do less well. And there's perhaps some truth in that, yet I'm hearing very clearly that we can actually train, develop, cultivate this Mm -hmm. capacity. So very often resilience is thought of and taught as innate temperamental traits like grit or determination or the will to survive, the will to endure. But the behavioral sciences have sophisticated that a little bit to say that they look at the severity of the external stressors, has someone lost a job or lost a home or lost a child or a car accident, and then the external supports that they have, family and friends and financial resources, medical resources, logistical resources. And then there's also these internal resources. It's true of grit, determination, compassion, clarity, courage. And those are the traits that can be cultivated when we know how. And it's the neuroscience that's illuminating for us, guiding us to how we can strengthen those traits. When we learn how the brain learns new responses, learns new habits, learns to change its behavior, and there are mechanisms we can use to do that, then we have choices about how we're going to meet and face and deal with the adversity that we're facing. And that's what's empowering that we can make the choices to strengthen these skills through experience, through practice, through repetition, um, and become more and more resilient as we go through our lives. I'm imagining, certainly it's, I think, true in my experience, I'm imagining there's a degree to which we can uh, practice in, in fair weather, as it were, develop the capacities such that when the, the storm strikes, when those catastrophes or disasters occur we're in the best possible position to respond is that true in how you engage with the teaching of resilience so this is how i teach it i I teach that there are different mechanisms of brain change that we can learn how to use and the first and the easiest is new conditioning you have new experiences you practice new skills repeating repeating little and often so that it gets grooved into the brain's neural circuitry and so we learn new patterns and new habits And we practice those, as you said, when it's not a moment of startle, it's not a moment of distress, we're just going along and we practice hand on the heart or self-compassion or gratitude. But to really be resilient, I find, um, most of us have learned patterns of responding to difficulty. Either it's our own neurobiological hardwiring, we have a a very fast survival response is built in by, by evolution. Or there's the conditioned patterns of response that we've learned from family, from teachers, from coaches, from peers, from our culture, our society. And very often those learned patterns of response are not always the most adaptive or flexible or skillful. So we want to rewire those patterns. And that involves taking a new pattern that's positive and juxtaposing it with the old pattern that's maybe more rigid. And the juxtaposition itself causes the neurons holding those patterns together to fall apart and to rewire. And when the positive is stronger than the negative, it will rewire the negative. So that's what I call reconditioning. Technical name is memory deconsolidation, reconsolidation. But we can take old patterns that we have and rewire them. So then we get to have new responses to our experience. There's a third mechanism that I teach besides new conditioning and reconditioning 
which is deconditioning. And that's simply allowing ourselves to let go of focused attention, let the brain play in reverie, in daydreams, in imagination, in guided meditations, guided visualizations. And when the brain is playing like that, it will very often connect the dots and make the links in new ways on its own. It's really coming from our own deep intuitive wisdom. So that's another way that we can rewire our brains that can be um, very playful and very fun, but very deeply wise. That's exquisite to hear. And it's especially apt. Uh, play is very much one of our mm-hmm. values in the community of love and truth party. And to hear the neuroscience supporting that this um, playful uh, being in awe, being in marvel, being in wonder, these things that often get sort of pushed aside or might be regarded as in uh, not, not so effective or productive in modern society. Mm-hmm. But I'm hearing you say that from a neurological perspective, they actually have a very positive effect upon um, supporting the neuroplasticity of the brain. Would that be fair to say? Yes, it's playing with the neuroplasticity of the brain. It, it opens the brain up to what Dan Siegel at UCLA calls the plane of open possibilities. And then we can actually stretch into new possibilities. What you're saying about awe and wonder and these larger spaces that the brain and the psyche and the soul can get into have been shown to actually shift the functioning of the brain. We have our negativity biases. We have our fast automatic survival responses. That's our biology. But when we use positive experiences like awe, wonder, gratitude, kindness, compassion, joy, those actually shift the functioning of the brain out of this contraction and reactivity into a more open perspective, a more open approach to things. And it has been shown in study after study that the outcome of those practices is resilience. And it's not just a correlation. It's a cause and effect outcome. So when we practice awe or compassion or kindness or generosity, we are actually strengthening the structures in our brain that we use for resilience. It, it, as you said, it's such an empowering message, such an empowering mm-hmm. fact that we can cultivate, that we can train, that we can uh, become expert in human mm-hmm. traits that we would, I think, across mm-hmm. cultures find to be valuable and desirable both personally and mm-hmm. uh, to be contributing to our community and, and to our society. What can I say? One of the biggest things that those practices do is help shift us from any passive victim kind of stance. Oh, these bad things are happening and I'm helpless. There's nothing I can do about it to a more empowered agentic stance. I can make choices. I love putting these quotes together from my friend, Janet Friedman, um, catch the moment, make a choice. And then from Julia Butterfly Hill, every moment has a choice and every choice has an impact. And when you put that together, Catch the moment, make a choice. Every moment has a choice. Every choice has an impact. That's the trajectory of resilience. And when we can um, empower ourselves to choose that, to deliberately, intentionally choose that, then we're cultivating our resilience. And this is very much uh, aligned with the sacred activism, the awakened activism that we're exploring here in Love and Truth Party. And it's quite sort of a zeitgeist at the moment. Like, What is it to bring higher states of consciousness to the crises of the world. And I'm hearing that this developing the individual neurology 
the remembering of choice, the stepping into that place of, of empowerment rather than victimhood um, feels to me very much ripe to be empowering people to contribute in more meaningful ways as well. So, so what I try to do in my teachings, in my workshops, is to help people strengthen their own inner secure base of resilience. And there's quite a bit that we know about that at this point. And when people can strengthen their own inner secure base of resilience, which is a lot strengthening the functioning of the prefrontal cortex of their higher brain, all these capacities to regulate the nervous system, to manage our emotions, to quell our fear response, to attune and empathize with ourselves, with other people, to increase response flexibility. When people have more of that inner secure base of resilience, then they can choose where they want to apply that, whether that's climate change or gay rights or you know, just taking better care of your child. They can decide where they want to apply those strength and capacities. So I'm trying to look at the underlying neurobiology of how we strengthen those and then people make their own choices based on their values and their circumstances of where they want to apply that. It reminds me of something a teacher said to me a long time ago that will we we practice, we meditate so we can be useful when uh, SHIT happens, you know, when the disasters strike. Right. And I, I think what's unfolded for me has become more clear and I hear you speaking to is that this is beyond our own individual capacity mm -hmm. to, to cope or to even thrive. I like that uh, post-traumatic growth mm -hmm. um, right. as an idea, as a concept, as a way of actually thriving from difficulty but also so I, to then contribute. Sorry, I could go in, in two directions here. Um, one is one of the things I say in my teachings and in my book is shit happens, shift happens. Mm -hmm. And so when we understand that bad things happen in this world, but shift happens too, we can learn through our mindfulness and we can learn through our compassion and we can learn through our own courage how to step forward and make those shifts that we need in our individual responses and that we need in our collective responses. And part of what's so exciting about this post-traumatic growth, which is a fairly recent evolution in the psychology movement of understanding that people can go through trauma, events that completely upheaval their lives and their sense of how the world works. But with support and with skills and with tools, People come out of that trauma with a new sense of possibility, a new sense of opportunity, a new sense of community, a new sense of being able to contribute something to the world, and eventually coming to a place where they feel an appreciation for their life, not just because of the, the trauma, not just in spite of the trauma, but because of their recovery from it. And they actually grow deeper and wiser as people. And I think that's an important contribution to understanding how we can respond to adversity and catastrophe and grow from it. And our communities can grow from it too. Yeah. I love that. And the way you were describing some of the outcomes, some of the benefits very much spoke to my experiences in life. And I think I'm sure to many of our viewers and listeners, it will be the same. And it, it seemed to be an extension from something you touched on earlier around the deconditioning and reconditioning when there is this, uh, bringing close together the juxtaposition of the old pattern and bringing the new pattern in right alongside it. So it's mm -hmm. very much that it seems that in the neurology, in the dysfunction is the opportunity for functioning, just as in the difficulty, there's the opportunity for breakthrough. Right. And so we call it, you've probably heard this expression, 
and AFCO, another freaking growth opportunity. <laughs> and, and if that's how, I hadn't heard that, but I'm going to be using <laughs> that. That's great. <laughs> and there's another one. I use many quotes in my teachings a lot. And there's one from James Russell Lowell that I really like that mishaps are like knives that either cut us or serve us as we grasp them by the blade or by the handle. Mm-hmm. And so how we approach the situation has an awful lot to do with whether we'll be resilient in the outcome or not. And that speaks to me. What, what I hear is reframing and consciously choosing the meaning that we're giving to events, to circumstance. And we're offering here, it seems, within resilience, a, a whole meta-narrative that we are as humans able to thrive in difficulty and challenge again it's really uh, diminishing that sense of victimhood and empowering the individual to, to to thrive whatever's happening and i like this idea of because of not mm-hmm. in spite of but because of the catastrophe yeah so t- two more quotes that I, I use these all the time one is from helen keller all the world is full of suffering it is also full of overcoming so to remember that, especially from someone, you know, who's an icon or resilient. Mm-hmm. And then from my colleague, Frankie Perez, who says, how you respond to the issue is the issue. Mm-hmm. So when we realize we have that, um, not just potential for choice, but responsibility of choice, um, then that's what feels empowering to me and exciting to me that we, we get to be grownups. <laughs> right. The, the, the personal responsibility there. And this, I feel, is very much supported by quantum mechanics as well. It's pointing out that it's the observing consciousness that is, in a very real sense, manifesting the world, but also the, the shape or the quality of that observing consciousness actually informs what's emerging. So I heard a phrase recently that it was, uh, as viewed, so it is, uh, a language I like is, it, it, it is what we say it is. Mm-hmm. So the story we tell is is not observing or rather not describing an objective reality out there separate from us, but right. it is a, a creative causative act. Yeah. Is that I something? Think, well, I think Anais Nin said something like, we see, we see things not as they are, but as we are. Mm-hmm. It's our own filter that allows us to perceive or misperceive what's going on out there. Again, it's a, a, a personal responsibility. Do you find in your teaching and in your training, uh, I guess there's a selective bias that people come to your trainings will be open to that. But perhaps as you've observed culture, society, communities in your decades of experience as a psychotherapist, do you find people are more able, more willing to take that personal responsibility than previously? So I, I use two things. One is um, a, a teaching I got from Paul Gilbert, who developed compassion-focused therapy in the UK. And he says, given evolution, we've all inherited basically the same genetic human brain. And given our temperament, our inherited characteristics from our ancestors, and given our family of origin conditioning and the experiences that we had early on in life, and given the norms and expectations of our culture and our society, who we are and how we cope is not our fault. And that can be a tremendous relief for people. Mm -hmm. But then he says, given neuroplasticity, who we are and how we cope becomes our responsibility. And I also use a teaching from Richie Davidson at the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds. And it's his research that has done so much to document the benefits of 
mindfulness and compassion practice on the brain. And he says, given neuroplasticity, which is really the reality, the brain is more likely to change than not, we have a responsibility to choose the experiences that will shape the brain in a direction that is wise and wholesome. And I think that's the responsibility we have. Since we know we have this power, we have a responsibility to use it on behalf of good and truth and wisdom in all mankind. I love those two pieces that you've offered us. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, uh, a, a total compassion because mm -hmm. we are a product of our circumstance. We know intergenerational trauma is a real thing. So That's often right. it's not even my stuff or it's not even an individual's stuff. It's a collective experience that's unfolding through the individual right. body-mind. And there's that important piece, yes, and we have the power and the responsibility and the capacities to... Mm -hmm um to transcend that in a very real way to and i guess the the beauty of that we're not just contributing to our own well-being and our own functioning and our own happiness or, or well-being within our family but we're feeding back into the neurological development of the human being and the, potentially the genetic expression and, and development of the human being as well absolutely so you and i are using the word responsibility as most people use it you know being an adult and taking charge of things but responsibility can also be interpreted as response ability, our ability to respond to what's going on out there in ways that are compassionate and courageous and clear. Mm -hmm. um, and I like that sort of double entendre, that so much of resilience is based on our response flexibility, being able to shift gears, shift perspectives, shift views, and try something new. So it's that flexing of our response ability that is really key to our resilience and taking responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you were to give a, a mini 10 second training or 30 seconds, mm -hmm. perhaps, what do you, what have you found personally or perhaps professionally in serving others are the most necessary or the most impactful, the most efficacious practices for developing both that uh, uh, response ability and, uh, and, and a general resilience? Well, I'll, I'll share with you a tool in a moment, but the larger context is I teach these tools organized by somatic body-based intelligence and emotional intelligence and relational intelligence within ourselves mm -hmm. and relational intelligence with other people and then our reflective intelligence on mindfulness. And so within that context, I begin with the somatic because the brain learns best when it has this neuroception of safety, when it's already in its range of resilience. It's not too revved up and it's not mm -hmm. too shut down. So one of the first tools that I always teach clients on my workshop participants is hand on the heart. And it can be done in 30 seconds. And it's simply placing the hand on the heart so that you can feel the warm touch of your hand on your heart. And breathing a little more deeply and gently into the heart center that activates the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system, so we're calming down. Mm -hmm. And then breathing in a sense of ease or goodness or safety or trust into the heart center, which restores the heart rate variability, which allows the heart to respond more flexibly to danger. Mm -hmm. And then to remember a moment, just one moment, of feeling safe and held, loved and cherished by another human being. Now, it may take people a few moments to find that person or find that spiritual figure or find that pet. But when you can recall a moment of being 
safe and loved and cherished and feel the oxytocin being released by your brain into your body, because oxytocin is the hormone of safety and trust, bonding and belonging, calm and connect. And when we release oxytocin, it is the brain's direct and immediate antidote to the stress hormone cortisol. So you can do this simple exercise in 30 seconds or less. It's powerful enough to calm down a panic attack in less than a minute. And when we practice this regularly, and the oxytocin is flowing pretty regularly, it can preempt the stress response from arising in the first place. So it's one of the most powerful tools we have, and it's very, very easy to learn and practice. Mm -hmm. I can speak uh, personally to, to verify my own encountering of the power of that. I was also struck that the, uh, the heart-centered meditation is something I use a great deal in my own work with people. But mm -hmm. the actual hand on heart and breathing into the heart was how I was able to um, cure grand mal seizures in my experience by restoring balance to the nervous system. So I, I can, it's, it's, it's beautiful to, to, to hear um, your description of what's unfolding there and our capacity to evoke the biochemical experience of mm -hmm. being held, of being loved mm -hmm. through our own intention and through our own insight and our own practice. And if we were to expand that a little bit, um, Yes, it is biochemical. It's the neurotransmitter of oxytocin. And what really activates the release of oxytocin is feeling safe and loved by other people. So we're activating the social engagement system of the nervous system. And that's also how we bring the nervous system back to that sense of physiological equilibrium, what's called the range of resilience or the window of tolerance. So when we can use our the, the safety and resonance of our relationships and get that sense of safety being held in community, being held in family, being held in relationship, then that's really one of the most powerful ways we have to activate that sense of safety in the brain. And my understanding is that longitudinal studies are indicating that a very powerful indicator of health outcomes, even more so than exercise or whether we smoke or not, is our quality of connection with friends and family. And it sounds like you've described really a, a way we might understand why that is so impactful if we're mm -hmm. regularly being given that experience of, of, of connection, of community, of oxytocin production, really uh, getting used to being able to generate that ourselves as a response to high stressful situations when the cortisol is going. It, it's so I, I think the missing link there is that the social connection, which is one of the most significant predictors of longevity and well-being. But I think the missing link is social connection reduces stress. Mm -hmm. And that's what contributes to our longevity and well-being, is the reduction of stress in our own nervous system. And it's by connecting with safe people that we can do that. And the, the cultivation of our own safety or our own balanced nervous system mm -hmm. uh, puts us in a position to to share that whether it be through workshops as you do or your online courses and so on or simply through our encounters with people through the day there's a certain uh, sort of transmission or, or leadership by example that occurs as we're as we're going about the place so again it's really demonstrating how that personal transformation the personal work we do is the foundation of our service in the world, of our capacity to contribute and help others. So let me go in a couple directions with that. Yes, when we learn these tools that bring equilibrium, a physiological equilibrium, 
to our own nervous system, then we can be in situations where things are stressful or catastrophes are happening. And internally, we can maintain that equilibrium, that equanimity. Then when we're encountering other people, I just love this one from Barbara Fredrickson, who wrote her book, Love 2.0, about loving kindness, saying that when two people are in physical proximity, maintaining eye contact, sharing positive emotions like kindness or gratitude, when there's a sense of mutual care and concern, what happens is that the brain waves of the two people begin to fire in synchrony, that the neurochemistry of the brains of the two people begins to synchronize, and it creates a felt sense of resonance that she calls love in her book, Love 2.0, I call safety and trust. So when we can come to that um, equilibrium within ourselves and then actually be able to connect with other people and transmit that to other people, then yes, we're spreading that kind of inner equanimity and ease and peace as we encounter other people in the world. There can be that direct transmission. That's beautiful. I mean, that for me is the sort of the underpinning of this term we use within Love and Truth Party rather playfully of being a new earth ninja. It is to be at cause in the collective consciousness and the collective neurology by being the change as we move around the place. And um, I, I would imagine in the work that you do, you're often working with people who feel called to contribute to social justice, to the, the transformation of creating a more beautiful world. Well, I actually encounter a lot of people who are dismayed at the suffering that is in the world, mm -hmm. and they're moved to act to alleviate that suffering. So on the one hand, we have a sense from our own experience, our own values of what's possible, and we also have a profound care about how that's gone off the rails mm -hmm. and wanting to help people who in circumstances or in their own mental well-being are suffering mm -hmm. and wanting to alleviate that suffering, whether it's external or internal. And so that's what I'm encountering mostly is people who may be familiar with their own suffering and wanting to heal, being motivated to offer that to other people as well. Yeah. And it, it seems to be significant where that movement to serve in the world comes from. If it's coming from a place of 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 depletion or or lack or or high stress or uh, resistance to what's happening, um, my sense is we're less effective, certainly less sustainable in our mm -hmm. social justice work or our sacred activism. So again, coming back to this cultivating the reservoir or the reserves the capacity for resilience as a mm -hmm. as a first step towards sharing that learning towards sharing those insights seems to be important so what i would offer here is the hand on the heart is one simple exercise there's an entire mindful self-compassion protocol that was developed by Kristen neff at university texas austin and chris grimmer at harvard and that entire protocol mindful self-compassion is bringing awareness and acceptance to whatever it is that we're experiencing and awareness and acceptance to ourselves as the experiencer to break the automaticity of the negative responses 
and move into a larger space in the heart that can hold whatever's happening and however we're reacting to what's happening and move us more into a sense of common humanity, of shared humanity. And from that mindful self-compassion practice, then people can be very motivated to reach out and, and help other people because it's coming from um, an appreciation of how we're all connected and how we all deserve to feel that inner peace and calm. It's inspiring hearing you speak, particularly as you reference so many uh, teachers, researchers, scientists who are developing protocols, who are furthering the research. And of course, you are one of many leading lights who are bringing these insights into workshops, into trainings, into teachings. And I'm sure many of the people you work with are then going on to incorporate that into their workplaces, into their communities. So mm-hmm. it, it sort of illumines a, a very hopeful world, a very mm-hmm. um, beautiful world as we see this compassion, this sense of connection, mm-hmm. these very, very efficacious and, and hard uh, functional tools spreading around the world. Mm-hmm. If I could share just a moment, because it just happened last week when I was teaching at the Cape Cod Institute, and it's all clinicians, most of them working with clients who've been through trauma. And so I'm offering these tools and asking what tools do they use and and trying to make sure we have time to integrate all these tools. And I begin to hear back from the clinicians, well, I'll try hand on the heart, and then I'll add this, and then I'll add that. And they begin to develop their own trajectory of how to help their clients deal with trauma and move through trauma. And it's so exciting because it's alive. It's mm-hmm. a live process that's happening right then and there. And you know they're going to go out into the world and, and ripple that out to the people that they work with. How, how has that changed in the decades that you've been working in this space? Because this feels to be very much on the edge of human culture and very much on the leading edge of uh, the, the evolution of human consciousness. Does that feel too grand a statement? Does that feel true as you look at your own experience? Um, so I think what I'm, I'm seeing as a, a shift in the field, really, is I think we used to see trauma much more as something external that happened to us. Mm-hmm. And now the researchers are understanding that the key is how we respond to that trauma, whether we go into a trauma response or a resilient response. Mm-hmm. We can look at the impact of um, attachment conditioning or what's now called adverse childhood experiences mm-hmm. that you know, when there's abuse or addiction or violence in the home, how that impacts the brain, how that impacts the developing psyche. But as we understand more and more about the capacities and the power within each person to be able to respond to that or deal with that and empower them to do that, then we're actually giving much more, um, it's not about control, but it's about much more choice to the individual person to make the choices that will make a difference. And I think that's what I'm seeing in the field more is more and more empowerment of people to heal and strengthen and become clear, become Mm -hmm. aware and make the choices that will make a difference. Yeah. That's what I'm seeing. That's also inspiring to hear. And of course, many of us, are required or we, we we learn these capacities later on in life i know that was true for me there was no uh, meditation for example at school or emotional resilience training can you speak a little bit to 
to what extent that is happening these days? Well, I think because neuroscience is illuminating for us how the brain learns, how the brain develops, how the brain grows, and then, of course, how that could be derailed. So that in the schools, for instance, the learning is seen not so much as just memorizing the capital of Nebraska or something, but emotional learning, mindful awareness learning, so that the brain is developing more of its capacities, not just memorizing facts. And as we understand how to really strengthen the functioning of the brain as young people grow up, then they're going to have more capacity to make choices, to decide their own values, to find their way in the world. And then I'm going to say, because there's a, a dark side of what's happening right now, um, without really understanding all the implications, most schools now have computers and most kids have their own cell phones. And we're just beginning to understand the impact of digital technology on the brain and how it can disturb our capacities of attention and focus and concentration and how it can minimize capacities to relate to people and have empathy and understand emotions when people are communicating through emojis rather than actually talking to another human being. And it's impacting our capacity even to be alone with ourselves and reflect and make our own choices. And so now people are coming out and divulging that actually a lot of the devices, the software, the programs are designed to be addicting. They're designed to keep us hooked with the stimulation and the novelty. And so the implications of that are just really starting to come out into public view. And, and I often teach, you know, when I was a child and I went to the dentist and if I behaved myself, I would be given a lollipop for being a good girl before we understood the causal links between sugar and plaque and tooth decay. Mm -hmm. It used to be so cool to smoke cigarettes before we understood the causal links between mm -hmm. smoking and lung cancer. We're just beginning to understand the causal links between depending on our devices. And, and there's so many life enhancing, life saving things that our devices can do, but to be careful about how much time we spend on them, how much time we interrupt the conversations that we're in to go check a message because we're beginning to get the causal links of spending too much time on our phones and going into brain fog or brain fatigue. Um, one of the things they talk about is not being able to distinguish what's relevant from what's irrelevant and we lose the capacity to do critical thinking. So there's many, many good things that are happening as we understand how the brain learns and changes and grows. And then we have to pay attention to the things that derail that development. Some of them are recent. Right. It's a sobering thought when we consider the, the prevalence of such devices and the younger ages that brains are being introduced to these devices. And I, I hear you that with the awareness of that, we're empowered as, as parents, as caregivers to, right. uh, to, to, to influence our children's activity with that. And perhaps also um, made even more aware or inspired even further to equip our children with the resilience, with the meditative awareness, with the attention training and so on, so that they can uh, safely use these devices that, as you say, are designed to be addictive and to, and to, to uh, yeah. And so one of the best things parents can do is spend time with their kids. 
not on a device, just conversation, just playing ball, just eating dinner together, actually having the relationships that can become more satisfying than being on a device. That's one of the best things parents can do. So we've gone from, it seems in a very short space of time and in a decade or two from turning the TV off or getting off the computer game. It's now the, all of that's right in the hand of the, of, of the individual. And I, I love what you're speaking to there, the, the power of simple human connection to allow that to be experienced as so valuable that the child recognizes that there are better ways or more enjoyable, more pleasing, more oxytocin producing Mm -hmm. ways of uh, connecting than getting likes on Facebook or or, or whatever it might be. And to to understand that the neuroscience is teaching us, again, this is um, the interpersonal neurobiology of Dan Siegel at UCLA. Brains develop in interaction with other brains. That's how Mm -hmm. brains develop that. You know, the interacting is what kindles the maturation of the brain. Mm -hmm. And so if we can retain that, people interacting with each other, we're going to have stronger, more resilient brains and better brain function. And to the extent that we lose that and substitute other interactions like with our devices for the regular, what human beings have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years to do to talk to each other, um, we need to keep that importance of that connection, that social engagement system front and center. Mm-hmm. That's how we do well. We at Love and Truth Party, it's, 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 it's a great hearing this because one of the many things that we do is facilitate the distribution of these love letters, the invitation, the social permission to go up to a stranger and express appreciation and to, to have a moment of eye-to-eye contact, to have a moment of connection and uh, to commit random acts of kindness and to maybe if you want to know what's happening in the world, maybe not go to the news, but knock on your neighbor's door or, or mm-hmm. see how your elderly neighbor might be doing and, and, and find out that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so those, especially the way our society is going, those moments of interpersonal interaction can be what someone remembers most in their whole day. Mm-hmm. If they actually had a moment of connection with another human being. Yeah, the, the, the gratitude practice is such a, a wonderful way of then revisiting that. There was a gentleman this morning, he walked past and he was unusually friendly. I was eating some delicious chocolate, so I offered him some and he was you know, really visibly struck by that. And I'm experiencing the ripple of that nice moment of connection and perhaps yeah. he is also. So again, it's pointing to that power we have as individuals to be at cause in the world, to be at... Uh, uh, mm-hmm. to, to, to be powerful in our service and our contribution through being happier, through being more functional, through being more resilient. Right. And then to follow the practice of our mutual friend, Rick Hansen, to take in the good of that, mm-hmm. to savor it again and again and again, to remember that moment of you and this other person with the chocolate and to, to go over that several times a day so that it really goes in as a resource. It's really something that you can call upon. And then when we have those resources already, those moments of interaction, or even in our imagination, this is the, the deconditioning, the compassionate friend, the wiser self, the good inner parent. When we have those resources to call on actual interactions or imagination, then we're not alone when we have to deal with something that's difficult. And that's a tremendous support to our resilience. Mm. It's so uh, enriching for myself hearing you, you speak to all this. And I want to just give the opportunity, 
uh, you've mentioned that the hand on heart practice is there are there any other little gems or pearls that you might like to to offer our listeners or viewers um so again i would start with the basics with the beginning and and not everybody knows these things so just to sigh to just let the body <sighs> which resets the nervous system and you can use that in a moment of tension or frustration if you're aware of that to just let yourself sigh and change your physiology it's mm. so simple and so basic and we can do it all day long as we go throughout the day um i think in the other direction the reflective consciousness the mindfulness of knowing what you're experiencing while you're experiencing it and cultivating the awareness that allows you to be with your experience without being hijacked or flooded by it. And that mindfulness that allows us to be present but not be engulfed is what creates choice points in the brain where we can begin to make a different decision or even discern what the options are. So from the basic being with our own body and coming into that equilibrium, to coming to a kind of clarity and awareness that allows us to make choices. And then, of course, there's a whole range of tools in between those. Mm -hmm. And is there anything you'd like to speak to about where, where next? It seems that there's uh, been a very, resilience has been very well received and you've got the second book out exploring mm -hmm. more practices and more techniques that people can use so i would point people to i think particularly that second book is practice laden exercise resilience toolkit yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and what next for you linda is it is there another book is it, is it a continuing of resilience i know you travel a lot i know you teach all around the us and the world what, what's what's on the horizon for you so there's two perhaps nexts um i i so love teaching in person and doing workshops where people get to connect and interact and change each other in a safe setting. And yet our world is going more and more online. You and I are talking, you know, through the internet. So I may develop an online course about resilience because that's a way of, I do travel and teach all over the world, but that would be a way of reaching more people around the world. The other thing that I'm very interested in actually is doing the research and writing some kind of guide that would be useful to people about digital technology because it's mm. just becoming so pervasive and, you know, people sleep with their phones and get up, you know, within five seconds they're on a phone and not fully understanding the impact on the brain. I was just encouraged to learn that the government of France is going to ban cell phones in all public schools, K through 12 beginning at September 2018. Wow. That's a huge move for a government mm -hmm. to make. And so I'd like to try to address more on a societal level what we can do about the impact of digital technology on our relationships, on our brains. So that's another direction I'm interested in. That is exciting news. And I'm, I would guess the very nature of the, the circumstances that the, the data is still very much coming in in terms of what, the effects of yeah. using a phone from this age or for that amount of day are. So yeah. it seems like it seems like a, a powerful preventative measure to rather than wait right. a decade to see just how negative it can be to, to, right. to, to take a step back at this early point. We need to take a step back at the early point because if we wait 10 years, we won't have the clarity in our brains anymore to discern what needs to be done. 
Right. We have that's, to do that while we can still do it. That's powerfully stated. And I want to remind people as well to check out your website because I know that there's uh, uh, resources there. And mm-hmm. if they want to be attending uh, the trainings in person with yeah. you and when the online course by the sounds of it um <laughs> is is perhaps one of those next that's on the way and mm-hmm. that's linda graham dash mft.net and linda it's been a, a real joy i feel that we've managed to squeeze a, a lot of wisdom a lot of very practical and profound wisdom into a short period of time which is testament to your mm-hmm. journey and the depth of your insights so mm-hmm. thank you Thank you for sharing all of that with our, with our viewers today. And I appreciate the opportunity to just flow, um, mm. you know, to be in the default mode and just let the brain play. Um, and I feel the, the wisdom and the richness that has come from that. So thank you. Well, it's, it's a beautiful thing with people such as yourself to create that space in the knowledge that there's so much that's been seen and understood and imbibed from the intellect, from the heart, from the intuition that it can, it can be allowed to flow in a way that's productive and helpful for everyone. So thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in person. We were, we were going to have tea. It turned out to be uh, an online connection today. I look forward to that tea someday in the future. Me too. Very much well. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this production today and would like to support the creation of more similar programming and feel resonance with the call to be of service to an emergent human culture, please join us at Love and Truth Party. You can download love letters. You can sign up for our newsletter. Of course, you can like and follow on all the usual Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and consider even a financial gift at Love and Truth Party. Thank you to all our supporters and community around the world. Together we are creating kind, conscious, courageous human community.